I've had three career breaks. One of them was voluntary, coming out of investment banking before going into research. And two, Carolyn, were not voluntary. I got ousted from my job running the wealth management business at City in a little bit of a dust up with my the new CEO of the place. And when I was running Merrill, I got managed out of Bank of America after we had completed the turnaround and the glass cliff was no longer glass. I guess it was steel. Someone else who didn't look a lot like me was given that opportunity. So they were heartbreaking. Hi, and welcome back to the New Rules of Business by Chief. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan, and we're the co-founders of Chief, the most powerful community of senior executive women. On this podcast, we challenge preconceived notions of leadership and how underrepresented communities, particularly women, are specifically impacted. Today, we want to discuss the pivot. Ah, the pivot. For leaders who are already at the top of their field, it can be disorienting and discombobulating and downright upsetting to face this career transition, especially when it's forced. I have personally been laid off before, and I've also conducted layoffs. They are both terrible. And work is more than a job. It's a livelihood. It's an identity. And it's so scary when that gets pulled out from under you. For sure. And especially in this unsteady economic climate, many people are facing this fear and finding themselves in an era of reinvention. But what does that look like for someone who's already at the top? And we know that ongoing layoffs, along with the disruption of AI, will impact women and people of color disproportionately. So what should women executives today consider when designing their next act? I'd say now more than ever, we know that careers are not linear. And there is perhaps no one who knows that more intimately than our guest today. Sally Krawcheck. She's the CEO and founder of Elevest, an investment platform designed specifically for women by women. Are you surprised if I tell you that I'm a huge fan? I would say we all are. Before becoming an entrepreneur, Sally got her battle scars as a Wall Street executive. To just go into her very robust resume a little bit, she was the CEO at Merrill Lynch, at Smith Barney, at City Wealth Management, and served as CFO at City. Pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. She's got to have some stories from being a woman in finance in the 90s. She absolutely does. And we talked about all of that and the resistance and bias she faced as a woman, even as the CEO. And she told me why mourning the loss is an essential part to rebound from a layoff and how she navigated her next chapter as an entrepreneur in raising capital. Mm, But what about the money tips? (laughs) She for sure shared some tips on personal finance as well for us both, Lindsay. So let's jump in. Hey, Carolyn, how are you? I'm good. So thank you for making the time and joining us. Happy to be here. So you started as an investment banker, then a research analyst, then a CEO, then a CFO, and now you're an entrepreneur. And you've talked a lot about in how every decade of your life, you've had a different career. So I'd love to start with you telling us how you have navigated this and your philosophy around designing your career and reinventing yourself and staying really open to opportunities that come your way. Yeah. As women, I think we have to. We're working longer than ever. And the chances of you having the same interest, the same ambitions, the same skill set 
at the age of 25 and 65 is pretty close to 0%. And so I think being open to how the business world is changing and how you're changing um, and giving yourself some room to grow, giving yourself some room for introspection, giving yourself some room to take some risks. So as you said, my 20s were investment banking. Carolyn, that was because that was a Silicon Valley of the day. And, you know, combined with the fact my father forbid me from moving to New York, I mean, that's all you needed, right? Oh, I'm going straight to New York (laughs) and uh, I'm going to become an investment banker. And it was hell. I mean, you know, the late 80s, 90s in investment banking, there was no subtle internalized, you know, bias. It was unsubtle, overt, overt, obnoxious, <laughs> highly sexualized, get the hell out of here. And I hated every minute of it. But what I did and what I say to young women in their 20s, what I did was I kept a pretty careful accounting of what I enjoyed, what I was good at, what I didn't like. And at the time, I loved the analytics in investment banking. I loved dealing with smart people, but I couldn't navigate the teams on Wall Street. I, I couldn't get through what we now know are sort of you know, those micro and macro aggressions. And so I found my way by sort of continuing to study myself a little bit to being a research analyst in my 30s, which sell-side research would had all the, for me, good stuff of investment banking and none of the bad stuff of investment banking. And, and Carolyn, I think I I was so thoughtful about it and and really hit sort of the checklist so well that I was, and, and I think I can say it on, on this podcast because we're we're about women moving ahead and taking that seat at the table. I think I was the fastest analyst that got from starting the job to number one ranked that they'd had on Wall Street. And again, it was because I knew what my strengths were and I was ready to take some real risks and I was ready to step out of the pack. But it's an exhausting job. And, you know, I could only be an analyst for so many years with the competition to be number one and the institutional investor votes. And so I took the opportunity when offered to become director of research and then CEO, in part because the skill set was totally different. And I thought, let me go from being all about the analytics to now seeing if I can manage and work with people. Um, And it worked. And I had a differentiated strategy at Bernstein and had sort of a serendipitous series of events where our Bernstein strategy was different. Wall Street was in a scandal. Um, and I was the person who Sandy Weil at Citigroup chose to come and put on a glass cliff and turn around Smith Barney in the research business and went on to have other big CEO jobs. Again, glass cliff stuff before, you know, in my 50s saying, wait a second, I see an enormous dislocation in the market. I see an enormous opportunity in the market. I see a way for me to have and my team to have an enormous impact in the market by helping women invest more. That's sort of the path. I'm really excited to jump into Elevest and your decision to start that. But before we go there, I don't know if you know this about me, but I also started in investment banking. Mm. You had a different track where you were progressing within that financial sphere. I went the path that I moved from like banking to corporate to startups and all sorts of different transitions. And I think what's really interesting, we're at this 
interesting moment as a society where we went through the great resignation. Now we're going through a lot of layoffs. And so a lot of people are finding themselves at an inflection point in their career, whether voluntary or forced. As you found yourself in those moments of career transitions, how did you specifically navigate those moments? Because they can be quite tough and exhilarating. Oh, oh. <laughs> and everything in between. And I've had three career breaks. One of them was voluntary, coming out of investment banking before going into research. And two, Carolyn, were, were not voluntary. I got ousted from my job running the wealth management business at City in a little bit of a dust up with my the new CEO of the place. And when I was running Merrill, I got managed out of Bank of America after we had completed the turnaround and the glass cliff was no longer glass. I guess it was steel. Someone else who didn't look a lot like me was given that opportunity. So they were heartbreaking. But my rule for myself is when you have a a bad career stumble, um, give yourself some time to mourn it. I love to joke, Carolyn, I give myself a day, I drink heavily, Um, I wallow, I feel self-pity, I read the nice emails people send me, and then I pick myself out and dust myself off. And of course, it's more than a day, but you can't wallow, right? What I've tried to do very quickly is to figure out what lessons are there and really try to learn them. So two days after I was ousted from running Merrill, I called members of the Bank of America board and said, thank you for the opportunity and what could I have done better? Um, you know, where, where did this go wrong? So you try to pull as much out of it and then try to give yourself a moment and a half to breathe. Um, okay, that didn't work for a reason. And, and maybe it was layoffs and there's just nothing, just like that's just it. But maybe there was something there for you to learn, something where maybe you thought you were excelling and you weren't hearing the negative feedback or the constructive feedback. And maybe it's time to sit back and say, you know what, I'm not a people person. You know what? I had a lot of mistakes in my math. You know what? I was too impatient. There may be nothing to learn. It may be, and this happens more than we like to admit, you may have worked for a biased boss who was hiding that bias well, and you were never going to get permitted. That might be the answer. But to give yourself the opportunity to incorporate it. And then I spent time doing really two things, one of which was writing and writing and writing early in the morning when I was half asleep and late at night after I'd had a glass of wine so my defenses were down. What is my ideal role? What do I want my life to look like? When I'm on my deathbed, what what will I feel proud of? What will I regret not doing? What will I wish my life had been? And try to project forward and then work from there. And as you know, they say you regret the things in life you don't do more than the things in life you do. And the other thing I did, Carolyn, was I would go out to my, what we call personal board of directors. I don't really, it's not that formal, but people who I know and who know me in different ways and would say to them, particularly people in the industry, you know the industry, you know me. Do you mind if I ask you, what would you do if you were me, if you were magically poured it into my body? What what would it be? And the answers I got, and then what I was able to do was the ones where I was like, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Or there'd be sort of a, a th- you know, when I, before starting Elevis, there was a little theme. People would talk to me about an invest tech company or wealth. And I, w- I could feel my pulse pick up a little bit that I didn't when I was alone. And so I think the combination of those two things, the introspection 
And then calling on that favor from your personal board of directors really helped to guide me. Yeah. So when in this journaling did the entrepreneurial words start to find their way onto the page? Like, how did you realize that that was ultimately what you wanted to do? And did it start at a place of wanting to build something yourself or more interest in that space and and sphere as an industry? Well, so the entrepreneur thing came a bit later. You know, at first I was fielding opportunities, come to this big company, you turn things around. If you do, there's no guarantee you'll become CEO, but you've got a warm handshake. And I'm like, do you all like give each other the same script for me? We're not going to put it in writing, (laughs) but we have this really cruddy business. And I'm like, do I want to be the turnaround gal who then gets booted? Probably not. What really happened to drive me towards Elevest was not, I want to be an entrepreneur, because I think that can be a recipe for complete failure. Because as you know, Carolyn, being an entrepreneur is so hard. If you start from, I want to be an entrepreneur, you don't, you don't. You literally, you do not want to be an entrepreneur. You do not. I thought I did. Now I question it daily. Yeah. See, see, you may have a problem that is so compelling that you want to solve that you have to be an entrepreneur to solve it. So that's the flip is what happened for me. I began to think a lot about women and money and it had that dropped into my brain from some of these personal board of directors meetings. My first response was when people said, you should start a wealth management business for women or an investing business for women. I'm like, you should jump off a cliff right now. And this is where my internalized biases come into play. I'm like, I'm in the varsity. Like, what, what do we say? You know, I'm of a different generation, you know, but I was very much like I'm in the varsity. And it was slowly realizing, wait a minute, if I want to have an impact on this world, given the privilege I have, given the opportunities I've had, given the experiences that no one else has had, huh, women don't have as much wealth as men. It is killing us, both literally and figuratively, that, you know, society is becoming more and more unfair. Families are worse off. You know, you can go through it. We'd love to say to all of us, nothing bad happens when women have more money, but we've been going in the opposite direction. A lot of people at the time, Carolyn, including Chief, you know, or have been working on that gender pay gap. A big part, though, is the gender investing gap, and nobody was working on it. In fact, it was viewed as, it's just not a problem. We all know, Carolyn, why women don't invest as much as men do. It's because they're not good at math. (laughs) And manly, manly, manly things like math and manly things like trading and manly things like, and I'm exaggerating for effect, but it was definitely women are risk averse. Nobody said it's her fault, but pretty much it's her fault. And so, you know, we'll throw some cocktail parties for her, but there's not a problem to be solved here. And as I began to put together my team for the first time said, maybe an industry with where 98% of mutual fund dollars are managed by men, overwhelmingly white, and 86% of financial advisors are men, overwhelmingly white. Maybe they centered men. And what if we built something that centers women? So that began to develop. And then I thought, I'll go partner with one of the big institutions that I know well, and we'll do this together. But I tell you, Carolyn, when I started to have those meetings, it was obvious that their mindset was just so far away. Mm. They're making so much money with the business as it is to try to then 
launch a new one or incorporate this into a new one would be foolish for them, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. For sure. It resonated so much for me when you're like, I'm in the varsity. So much of that is, I was starting as a as a founder and entrepreneur as well. You would talk about the mission and like the problem that you're trying to solve of truly unlocking leadership for women in Chief's case. And so many people saying like, oh, that sounds like a really cute business focused on women. Niche. Niche. Exactly. Exactly. How did you navigate that as you decided, okay, I'm going to build this? And especially as you think about like getting venture capital dollars and trying to tell that story of not just what a critical company this is to drive change within society, but also it's not niche. It can be a a really important business. Well, that's what drove me the most over the edge is, you know, I, I had a little chart I finally put together that showed the dozens and dozens and dozens of wealth management, wealth tech, investment management, you know, private bank, asset management companies with majority men clients, which is like all, all of them that are worth multiple billions of dollars and yet would get the, well, Elevis sounds great, but what if, you know, Fidelity tries to get in, which of course they are. So there's room for, for all of us, you know, here. And so it was telling a story. The thing that I did not know before I got into it was how uphill the climb for venture dollars are. And we, Carolyn, gloss over the women raised, women CEOs raised 2% of venture dollars. And what we don't realize, we, we sort of think about that means a whole bunch of companies never get off the ground. What we don't, I think, adequately acknowledge is that means women CEOs have to have 50 times more meetings and 50 times more models sent out and 50 times more decks to track and 50 times more questions to answer and 50 times more stupid questions to answer and 50 times more really stupid questions to answer. And, you know, and then the model's out of date and then why is it taking so long? And now I'm getting nervous because it's taking so long. And the amount of time it takes away from the business. And by the way, for FinTech Series B, which we raised a year ago, women don't raise two in every $100 or one in every 50, one in every 10,000, one in every 10,000. And it felt like that on some days, even though our numbers are really quite strong. So the way I worked at recognizing, again, my privilege and that I do have connections that other folks just don't have. So I definitely want to 1000% acknowledge that. What I found with those connections is going to the traditional, in the case of FinTech financial services, typically very male venture capitalist, I was going to people with money and convincing them of this vision. Mm. When I stopped doing that and started going to people who shared the vision and asked them for money, that went much better. And it was women who, you know, invest for a living like a Penny Pritzker and a Melinda Gates, you know, an Elaine Wynn, a Melody Hobson, Rethink Impact. But in this last round, we did a series of special purpose vehicles where we brought together women investing in the thousands and tens of thousands as opposed to the millions and worked, got our raise done through that. By the way, it had never been done before. I was in fact called to the House Financial Services Committee to testify about how we debroify finance, this being one of them, or fintech. It was a different means to the to the end. Yeah. It so resonates with me of I have been in the venture 
world in general. And I came in pretty naively thinking like, oh, I've got a lot of connections. It'll be easy. And I did have those connections, but it was still extremely hard. And it just makes you just the empathy for people who don't have those connections and how it's magnified for women of color even more and just how much change really needs to happen around access to capital. We, we really need something, you know, crowdfunding is fantastic and women outperform men on the crowdfunding sites. That leap between crowdfunding and venture is a pretty big leap. It really is. Yeah. And, the, you know, what we did with the special purpose vehicles, we sort of bridged the gap, but it took a lot of thinking and work and then serendipity for that to come together and connections. And then the other thing is the big checks. You know, once you get past that series A into the series B, the $50 million checks, the $100 million checks, it, it's, it gets tough there. Again, there aren't a lot of women writing those big, big checks. So we talked a little bit about you as a CEO, you as a founder, and you as a capital raiser. I'm curious, how has gender bias shown up for you as the CEO? 1,000%. 1,000%. I had a flashback the other day when I was brought in to turn around Merrill, which was, you know, at the time in pretty bad shape after Bank of America bought it. And I got a call from Ken Lewis and, you know, he said, look, you know, Sandy Weil says you can do this. Come on in. And, And then he sort of, you know, dropped me in. I mean, said, go out and meeteth the FAs, financial advisors. And and I had a flashback the other day, Carolyn, of going into one of the offices in New York and having sort of a semi-hostile audience where one of the men sat back in the chair. He then splayed his legs open. So arms are crossed on top, legs are splayed on bottom. And essentially said, why, why do you think you're qualified to run Merrill Lynch? Mm. With this haughty voice. <laughs> You know, besides the fact, like, I've accomplished way more than you, like, chief financial officer of City, <laughs> like, it was so obnoxious and put me in such a, you know, and I give myself kudos. I want to go back and hug me and say, well, good for you for standing up to him. So that was a explicit example. They, they didn't do that to any man who ever walked in. But I also see it when I look back with things I didn't recognize at the time that, you know, my boss at... City, the last boss I had who was brought in to turn around the company during the subprime crisis, my business was performing quite well. But he, he wouldn't look at me. He wouldn't look me in the eye. Um, I was the only woman on the leadership team. He would go around the room and ask people's opinion and would not ask mine. And I was left with a, wait, 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 wait. What, what about me? I had in another job what, you know, in hindsight is pretty gendered feedback of, my profile was too high and I needed to get it down. And I said, my profile's high because we're turning around Merrill. The numbers are so good. I haven't given a single interview without you asking me to do it. Well, that's your problem. Get your profile down. And in hindsight, the mouthy woman, right? You, you would think she's turning around the business. The profile is just going to be high because of the curiosity of it but no understanding of that. And so there are little bits along the way, which I didn't see at the time, but in hindsight, being treated differently. Yeah. It's almost like you were removed from it. It's hard to see about yourself in the moment, for sure. Well, because the messages we send to women, you know, think about lean in, right? This is what you need to do. And this is how you get ahead. And this is the way you ask for the raise. And it doesn't say, here are the warning signs of bias, right? 
red alert, we don't want to think that. That that feels very disempowering. We want to feel like this is in my control. Those are the books that sell. The ones that don't sell are, he's never going to promote you. He hadn't promoted a woman in 15 years. He says all the right words, but he's always going to promote Jim or Steve. It's never going to happen for you. Just wake up and smell the coffee, right? If, you know, he's not asking your advice before meetings, you're, you're not in the inner circle. You're not being invited out to drinks. Maybe we should write that book. The Carolyn and Sally Debbie Downer's book <laughs> of how to know it's not working and it's totally not your fault. I love that. What do you think outside of some of the gender bias that we're talking about? Like, what has truly been the biggest lesson you've learned during your CEO journey so far? Like, if you really could go back and teach yourself something from the very beginning, what do you wish you knew in your leadership journey? Yeah, um, I do wish I had been savvier about these interpersonal dynamics and the internalized expectations and internalized perspectives that people have. I really did for the first half or two thirds of my career buy into the, you know, we just have to work harder. You know, I'm just working harder than other people, Carolyn. And I, you know, have sacrificed and I didn't spend as much time with my kids when they were toddlers as maybe, you know, other folks did, or I may have wanted to in hindsight, but I just, I didn't see what was in front of me. Now, you don't want to spend your whole life looking for it because if you look for it, you will find it. I don't think I was thoughtful enough or, or kind enough about it to others as, as we were going through it. I did just think this is a work hard. I think also I would have started Ellevest a lot sooner. The biggest career mistake I made, even though it was a career highlight, was having run Smith Barty, then going over to run Merrill. I got handshakes on the money. I got handshakes on the responsibility. I got handshakes on what decisions I could make. And when the CEO who hired me left um, two months later, earlier than expected, none of those handshakes were upheld and I didn't have them in writing. And I was always Wall Street word is your bond. And so that is a two years that I poured my life into that if I could have been spending it building Elevest, I, I would think that would have been a better use of time. Yeah, for sure. So then as we look to the future, we talked a lot in this podcast about how you've gone through reinvention a lot throughout your career. And as you think about the next 10 years, what's next? How do you think about that? I think the work we're doing at LMS is so frigging important. It makes my eyes pop out of my head. Nothing bad happens when women have more money. And by the way, investing is not that hard. You know, we overcomplicate it because we all get A's. We all want to be perfect. It seems like it's a lot of jargon, a lot of complexity, a lot of energy poured into CNBC and Bloomberg. And so therefore, all of the chief members who all got A's at school, I know, like, I'm really going to sit down and do this, but I got to really get prepared. You don't. It literally takes 15 minutes. It doesn't have to be a lot of work. It doesn't have to be any drama. You know, and I always say it's the highest return 15 minutes of your life, except for maybe the 15 minutes when you met your partner or your spouse. Maybe, you know, maybe the 15 minutes when you got the best job. But there have only been two scalable ways to build wealth in this country. Real estate and the other way is investing. Just over a 10-year period has not been as risky 
to invest in the stock market as you think. You had about a 98% chance of a positive return if you, you stuck for 10 years. So then imagine a world where women are building wealth and women have built wealth. And Carolyn, that is a world in which women do not have to stay in the personal relationship that no longer works for them, that no longer works for their children. It's a world in which you don't have to stay in the job you hate because you cannot afford to leave. It's a world in which more businesses are started. Frankly, Carolyn, it's a world in which the earth is not burning because women are more likely to believe in the negative effects of climate change and more likely to donate towards it. What we do at Elevest in our private wealth business is we've had a real focus on in women investing in women. And while other people were doing crypto and Bitcoin, we really dug in and said, you know, what we're hearing from our women clients, those who have been successful in their careers, is they don't want to give up the financial return. You know, women, we do not compromise on things like that. But we want to know where our money is going. We want to invest intentionally. And so we've put together a series of private investments that get money to small business owners in Latin America for working capital, which is not available, to women venture capitalists investing in women, to investing in femtech, where only 2% of venture dollars goes to women's health, which is about the highest return thing you can invest in, for goodness sake. Fixing up workforce housing in the Carolinas in a sustainable way, renting it to women who are in transition. Doing things like that where, I mean, a 60-40 investment portfolio, woo, all day long. But this stuff, you know, and what we're seeing, beginning to see is this real movement of women saying, my money is power and I want to build my wealth and I want to get other women to be better off by, by doing it. So this is my next five years, 10 years, 20 years, you know, they're taking me out of here, toes up. <laughs> I love it. Kind of. I Maybe not the toes <laughs> up part. <laughs> well, hopefully it's a ways away. We always like to close these conversations asking people, what's the best or worst piece of leadership advice you've received? I almost want to flip it for you and say, since you are such a financial expert, what's the best or worst financial advice you received? Obviously, just investing is step one and really needed and more people need to do it. I'm going right to more portfolio right after this. What is the thing that you, for people that you're like, just do this, just start? So the worst financial advice ever was, I remember, not surprisingly, my ex-husband telling my younger brother not to bother investing in his 20s because he was going to make, as a lawyer, make so much more money in his 30s and 40s. And the massive mistake there is not recognizing the power of compounding, which is really very counterintuitive. This is, again, the key to building wealth is, you know, you invest money and then you earn a return on your money. But then you earn a return on the return in your money. And then you earn a return on the return and the return of your money. Then you earn a return on the return of the return of the return. Until, and this is Warren Buffett's big, big thing and why he's the greatest investor in the world. The whole thing snowballs. The biggest mistake men make in investing is they overtrade. And when you overtrade, you make mistakes. You are not going to outperform the professionals who do it all for their entire life, and it's their full-time job. You're just not going to. The mistake women make is we just don't do it. And if all you do is just put in place a diversified portfolio and just, you know, recurring deposit, you are literally ahead, Carolyn. It's like one of those things in life that never happens, which is the less you do, the better off you can be. 
It's true. (laughs) I need more of those in my life. I really appreciate you taking the time for this conversation. I've always been a huge admirer of you in all of the different phases of your career. And I'm excited for the next phases of LFS and everything that you're building. Well, I love what y'all are building Achieved. So it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. That was Sally Krawcheck. She's the founder and CEO of Elevest, the platform designed to help women reach their financial goals. There's so much to learn from how Sally has pivoted when she faced obstacles like a layoff or a reorg. Or working 50% more to raise money and get a company off the ground. (laughs) I'd say we've been there for sure. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Remember how many no's we received when we were trying to get Chief off the ground? All the no's. (laughs) All the no's. I couldn't even get a lawyer who I wanted to pay to help incorporate us. And what Sally said about how for women, businesses are considered niche when it's still applicable to half the population and how much that shows people are just unwilling to widen the table. Yeah. What resonated with me was when Sally talked about recovering from a setback, mourn the loss, be sad about it, but don't wallow. And I feel like it's especially hard when you're trying to unpack how much of that setback was actually in your control or because you're a woman working in a biased system. You know, maybe that boss would have never promoted you simply because he doesn't promote women. Even as we were raising money and we were getting those no's, it was so hard not to question if it was simply a no because we were women. Uh, I'm going to credit a few of them just to make (laughs) myself feel better that some of them were just because we were women. So look, if you're facing a time of reinvention, whether it's forced or voluntary, got to do some introspection, talk to your trusted advisors and make a bet on yourself because according to Sally, the best is yet to come. And in this economic climate where change is a constant, women need to stay vigilant and pay attention to what problems we are driven to solve, what motivates us and what we're good at. Sally said it better than I ever could. We're working longer than ever. And the chances of you having the same interest, the same ambitions, the same skill set at the age of 25 and 65 is pretty close to 0%. Hey, you know, the one thing I did now was I started investing in my teens. So I think Sally would be so proud. (laughs) Uh, I didn't. Or at least not like I should have. I definitely saved money, but it all just sat in a cash account. Oh, Carolyn. Very stupid investing. Yeah. So with that, that's where we will leave you for this episode of the New Rules of Business by Chief. Don't forget to invest the money you're saving and don't miss out on all of our Chief content. You can get more podcast episodes by following the New Rules of Business on your favorite podcast app. And if you want to learn more about Chief, head to our website, chief.com. Chief is the most powerful community for senior executive women designed to create meaningful connections with fellow executive leaders that'll unlock transformative outcomes for your career. Thanks to Sharon Yee, Courtney Conley, Mercy Harper, and Mesa Melton at Chief, and to our entire production team, Pod People. Our music is by Colin Hatch. I'm Carolyn Childers. And I'm Lindsay Kaplan. Thanks again for listening. 
So uh, you going to write that book with Sally, the uh, Debbie Downer's book of when he's never promoting you and it's not your fault? <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of material for that. Yeah.